Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at Exeter University in the Department of History. And today we're discussing Resources versus Fighting Quality, Rethinking World War II. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Uh, Professor, what would you say is the um, uh, thesis of your argument? Well, I wrote a book called Rethinking World War II, and the argument is essentially that all too often we've absorbed, as it were, the loser's verdict on World War II, which was that they were the better soldiers, but that they were overborne by the size of the economies of their opponents, particularly America and the Soviet Union, and that they lost accordingly. And I think this is both wrong um, uh, as an account of World War II and also wrong as a view on military history. So in essence, your uh, argument is, why did the Allies win World War II? Yes, essentially, I'm looking at why the Allies won. I mean, there is a separate question as to why the Axis lost, and the questions are not completely identical, but they, you know, it is essentially the same question. Now, why would you say uh, our, our, our being Anglo-American standard account of World War II is a German account? Well, I think the standard account of World War II is the German account because it suits a number of narratives. It suits suits the narrative of um, the idea that it's essentially an empowered good society uh, that wins the war and sort of the Rosie the Riveter wins the war. In other words, that the home front is absolutely crucial. And that very much accords with the direction of the, as it were, history of war since um, the 1960s, which has very much become a, a matter of the social history of war. In other words, war almost with the fighting left out. And whilst that might be attractive as a historical narrative to people who are as it were, faddish. I don't think it gives us an accurate account of World War II. There is also, as been pointed out by a number of scholars, particularly American scholars, uh, a fascination in um, Britain and the United States uh, with the Wehrmacht and with the idea that its fighting quality was very high. This, incidentally, was a view that was very convenient in the 1940s and 50s and thereafter, A, because it helped to explain um, the, as it were, what had gone wrong when things go ro- went wrong, but more particularly because obviously the Wehrmacht was the progenitor of the Bundeswehr and the Bundeswehr, the army of um, essentially West Germany, uh, was a key component of NATO. So the belief had to be um, that you know that their fighting quality was extraordinarily high, and that therefore uh, they would be able to um, to stop a Soviet attack. So I think it works at a number of different levels, and you know there are other sort of factors. The 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 success of the German mythos about uh, particularly Blitzkrieg, uh, the fascination with all these um, History Channel captured German footage of you know Stukas swiping down, swooping down, and uh, tanks moving across 
um, the planes, the sort of uh, weapon fetishists of people that are interested in things like tiger tanks. And there was a, a total failure to, to note the multiple uh, strategic and operational flaws of the Third Reich and uh, also of imperial uh, Japan. Now, it wasn't that the Allies didn't make serious mistakes. Uh, the most egregious of one, of course, was Stalin's um, in uh, June 1941, completely ignoring, uh, you know, mounting evidence of German plans to attack. Um, so it wasn't that the Allies always got it right, but many times the Axis got it wrong. Um, and that tends to be underplayed. And can I just add one last thing? There is this belief always, you know, you endlessly are told uh, the victors always write the storybooks. Well, actually, that's generally not the case because the people that have the most strong vested interest in writing the storybooks are the people that have lost. They have to explain away their defeat. So the Confederates in the American Civil War or in World War II, the Americans and, sorry, more or to the Germans and the Japanese. And obviously, it's a very convenient mythos for them. You know, we were better, but we were overborne by superior resources. Now, in uh, your um, treatment, you say that uh, uh, operationally, Blitzkrieg was a, um, somewhat problematical um, from the German perspective. Why is that? Well, can I just say, I'm not unique in saying that. Uh, not that that makes an account better or worse. I wouldn't wish to, be, to pretend to be the only person that has drawn attention to deficiencies in Blitzkrieg. But let, let me try and explain some of the arguments made by other scholars and made also by myself. First of all, the extent to which the German army was mechanized, exaggerated. Uh, most of the German army walked to war. And in fact, its use of horse transport uh, was much higher than that of its opponents. Um, so it's actual, there's been a mistaking of what might be called the armoured tip of the army, and that has been used misleadingly to characterise the entire, the entire force. That's point number one. Point number two, there has been a failure to note the extent to which in some operations, particularly the crossing of the Middle Meuse uh, River in 1940, which was absolutely crucial for the Battle of France, it was much closer than any uh, any portrayal of inevitable German victory would suggest. And thirdly, Blitzkrieg was very dependent, or German war making, if you wish to use that term, that's the term I would prefer, uh, was very dependent on its opponents doing what it wanted to do. And of course, when that went wrong, you saw that in uh, um, with the modified Schlieffen plan in 1914, then the whole thing fell to pieces. So in 1939, uh, with Poland, uh, the decision to defend the perimeter of Poland uh, was pretty crucial in the uh, and, and the absence accordingly of a sort of uh, major reserve was pretty, pretty crucial in Poland's failure, though the instrumental factor in Poland's failure also was to do with the Soviet Union being on the German side. Um, case of the uh, Western Front in 1940, the Allied movement forward into Belgium um, in a sense meant that the Allied reserve was on the extreme left and was not available to uh, act against the Germans when they broke through the Allied centre. Um, now, th these were uh, serious mistakes. They didn't inherently prove that Blitzkrieg was superior, and German war-making came badly unstuck, of course, um, in Operation Barbarossa, where the, um, the defence in depth 
that was offered by the Soviet Union um, really was a very important factor. And again, you know, just simply on tanks, of course, um, yes, Germany had tanks, but not only did its opponents have tanks, but more to the point, a focus on tanks uh, can lead to a underrating of one of the most significant uh, weapons of World War II, uh, which is the anti-tank gun. Um, so we we are so fascinated on the offensive, we tend to uh, underplay um, its deficiencies and indeed the extent to which repeatedly, 1939, 1940, 1941, German off offensives uh, hit major problems with the breakdown of the tanks, with running out of supply and therefore with the need to regroup. And I, I think that this tends to be underplayed. So in essence, you would um, agree with the uh, late American historian, Ernest R. May of uh, Harvard, in his book dealing with uh, the fall of France in 1940, his argument being that it was a um, very close-run thing and that it was very much a question of um, uh some matters um, turning up trumps when they could have very well have gone to the other way. Yes, I think it was certainly a closer run thing than is usually uh, understood. And of course, the French army went on fighting. I mean, in June, the French were killing more Germans than they'd been killing in May. And, you know, it was a hard fight for the Germans to break across both the Somme and the Aisne. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, these factors are really worth thinking about. And it's all too easy. You see, the, the tendency with people who look at history as a whole is to think in terms of this nebulous and spurious of concepts, the military revolution. And they argue specific uh, form of warfare, let us say the so-called artillery fortress of the early modern period or the idea of the, um, the um, Swedish or Spanish war making uh, techniques or for um, you know, Frederick the Great's uh, oblique attack or the revolutionaries or blitzkrieg in the case of the Germans. And the idea is that this in some way is a, a paradigm leap uh, which changes and transforms the nature of war making. Well, you know, I mean, come on. Um, first of all, that's not the case if you look at any of these periods empirically. I mean, the military revolution of the early modern period has been exploded. Um, Frederick the Great's oblique attack hit considerable problems by the latter stages of the of the Seven Years' War. French revolutionary columns lost uh, a lot of battles as well as won a lot of battles. And in the case, and as we know more recently, the idea that the so-called revolution in military affairs uh, had transformed all warfare, I think, ran out in the sands of Iraq rather quickly. So I think we need to be much more sceptical. As you know, I've written a book, Rethinking Military History, which has tried to argue this. We need to address the complexity of warfare rather than the spurious idea that you can produce a concept, whether you call it the military revolution or whether you call it Blitzkrieg, which apparently um, assesses capability and can then be used to explain what's ludicrously simplistic. Does the Battle of El Alamein uh, bear out the traditional interpretation? Will you tell me what you think the traditional interpretation was? I mean, it was a very methodical battle on the part of, of the British. I mean, their initial plans didn't work out terribly well. 
um, a methodical battle in which in some respects it's latter stage World War One technique, um, the use of artillery nation, which had worked very well in 1918. And of course, Montgomery, like quite a few generals of World War Two, uh, uses essentially 1918 techniques and uses them well. And a lot of the fighting in World War Two is very similar, relatively high density battlefields, uh, which incidentally leaves relatively low opportunities for mechanized forces and the need very much to bring up a lot of fire support and to try and fight the battle in front of that fire support. I mean, the Germans also had other practical disadvantages. They were at the, very, at the end of a very long logistical chain, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's fair to say that it was a uh, effective battle. I mean, obviously, Montgomery did not manage, and I think the same thing could be said of both Eisenhower and Montgomery in 1944, and it could be said of the Allied uh, generals in Italy after um, they, you know, in 1944, they did not manage to maintain engagement with the, those that they were pursuing. I mean, it's easy for us to say that. After all, this is the aftermath of the battle, and it's a and it's a natural thing to do, rather like Napoleon does after Ligny to try and, you know, to try and regroup, deal with your wounded. Essentially, uh, essentially those factors. But the the failure to maintain the contact and to destroy the forces that they were pursuing meant that subsequently their opponents were able to retire to new defensive lines. So in the case of the North African campaign, the Mareth line uh, in southeast Tunisia, um, in the case of Italy, of course, the German lines that had been bought, built in the northern Apennines, um, in the case of uh, 1944, the German defences in which we you know, often sort of crudely called the Siegfried line, but I think we could say more accurately. Um, one could say with the, uh, the taking advantage of the of the topography, both riverine and uh, mountainous, as you get up towards the German frontier. So to that extent, there was failure. Um, but in terms of inflicting uh, a, a breakthrough um, um, victory on the Germans and Italians, incidentally, the Germans were quite happy to fight to the last Italian in terms of Italian units in, in the high in the way of harm to protect their retreat. Um, there, there was a very serious in, a defeat inflicted, and that was important also for morale, I think. Um, um, in, but the in practical terms, in strategic terms, the landing in early November of a substantially American, there was a British part of it, but a substantially American force in Morocco and Algeria meant that the rear of Rommel's Africa Corps in uh, in Egypt was now strategically in a precarious position. Let me ask you uh, a vulgar question. The question would be, but I think it's actually it's uh, notwithstanding its vulgarity, it's also can be illustrative. Uh, how would you rate, in terms of both tactics and operationally, um, uh, the uh, three allies in terms of which particular um, battle or campaign would you rate as? Um, operational tactical turns as the best. Would you rate, for example, Bagrationen as perhaps the best uh, campaign by the Allies during the war? Well, that's a very interesting question. And of course, I mean, in a sense, um, the British and the Americans are fighting the Japanese as well. So that in many senses, 
I mean, Midway is probably the climactic um, example of a really dramatic second-by-second naval battle. Uh, And that, of course, is a great American triumph. And there is absolutely zilch. You know, the Soviet Navy in both the Baltic and the Black Seas does pretty badly. Um, So um, then you've got battles or campaigns which you can see at more operational length or even longer than that, the Battle of the Atlantic against German submarines, in which the British the Americans and the Canadians all played a fundamentally successful role. Um, but that's on a different time scale. And again, there's no comparison. Um, the Soviets didn't go into strategic bombing. So the extent to which Allied strategic bombing ended in the American case, Japanese resistance, crucial victory, the dropping of the atom bombs. And in the case of the Anglo-American combined bomber offensive, wore down the Germans, wrecked the cohesion of the German industrial complex, forced a lot of uh, German munitions production into anti-aircraft guns into uh, defensive fighters. Um, all of that were, were both major triumphs. Triumphs, alas, co- at the cost of a lot of the lives of these brave pilots flying in very difficult circumstances. But those were great triumphs. Now, if you're asking about battles on land, the scale of that matter, the Soviet uh, conquest of Manchuria, at the very end of the war when the Soviets came in against Japan, those aren't matched on scale by anything that the British and the Americans do. But in terms of fighting difficulty, for example, Okinawa and Iwo Jima, um, you know, are, or Saipan, are at a much smaller scale, but the actual difficulty that is posed to them easily compares, may even be greater, depending upon your point of view. You're fighting against an absolutely fanatical opponent, unwilling to surrender, may be diff- more difficult than that pope faced by the Soviet Union. Um, again, I mean, the, the British army in Burma, uh, you know, beat a Japanese field army and at a greater scale and more successfully than anybody was to do until the Soviets attacked in Manchuria. Um, so it, it, it depends in part on what one's looking at and how one assesses. It's a very good question. Um, um, and it's actually a better question. The, the question you made is not a vulgar one. It's a better one than what is you often see rather silly works by Max Hastings in which he's talking about national fighting quality as a whole and about, you know, the comparing and contrasting the Germans, the Soviet Union, the British and the Americans, which is not so helpful because, of course, uh, as any general of the period would have told you, uh, you get different fighting characteristics from particular units. I mean, um, different differing willingness to cross the killing ground, often linked to the issues of age and experience, for example. Um, and that's exactly what you'd expect. So rather than thinking just simply in terms of national uh, breakdown, you need to to think in terms of particular units, you need to think in terms of particular tasks, and you need to think also about, you know, the great underrated factor of war, which is training, and training, which is a major enabler. It helps the Allies' fighting quality improve very considerably in 43-44, means that the same unit uh, which you might look at in, say, 1941, if you compare that unit in 1944, 1944, it might well be fighting considerably better. So, in fact, uh, you would not agree with um, Hastings' argument that uh, man for man, uh, the German soldier was uh, better quality than his Anglo-American opponent. No, it's a ridiculous argument. And, I mean, the, uh, one of the uh, evidence he cites for it is that uh, British and American officers 
um, in you know the winter of 44, 45, sometimes complained about their troop, troops not being you know willing to cross the killing grounds, not being willing to die. Well, of course, if you'd were a journalist writing that after the July bomb plot, uh, you would have been executed for defeatism. And if you were a Soviet officer, the job of the commissar would have been to shoot you at once. I mean, it's a classic example of the flawed failure to contextualise. Uh, evidence and to think about why evidence is there. So no, I think Hastings is, is, is wrong. And of course, so many of these people who try and play up the Wehrmacht has failed to address the question that to the best of my knowledge, the Germans lost World War II just as they lost World War I. And they lost after mistakes in terms of strategy, in terms of operational effectiveness as well. There were many mishandled uh, operations. Not surprisingly, this is exactly what you'd expect. It, war is difficult. War is a matter of the management of risk. Um, and that is operating in which in, in a in, in with multiple inputs in which you're uncertain as to what your opponent is doing. Uh, it's not so people make, make mistakes, but I think there has been this fascination. And of course, it starts from an early stage. I mean, Alaric Sell's brilliant work on Little Hearts um, uh, you know, interviewing of the German generals and how little heart self-servedly, like a lot of the British commentators of the period, played arguments, classically Erwin Rommel, of course, who was celebrated in film and such like, um, they classically played them up because it actually made them look better. I mean, heart, I mean, people like Manstein, you know, were saying to Little Heart, oh, well, you were brilliant and we learned from you. Well, actually, that suited Little Heart. There's, it's a very dubious proposition. And you, you know, I, I, if I were you, I'd read Searle's work. It's very good on this. And he's also writing at the moment, of course, on JFC Fuller. Uh, and that promises to be good as well. Very talented scholar. Um, and I, I think there is a, you know, a... a, a rather, I mean, you know, it's interesting, Little Heart, like Hastings, a journalist turned would-be historian. I tendency to to not see not see the fuller the nature of what Germans call source criticism. And you know, I mean Ranker would have had absolute fun with some of this stuff. And there is, I, I'm afraid there is really high quality military historical work, but there is also, because it's a popular field, there is a lot Stuff out there, and of course the question, um, uh, which is for face of battle stuff, and you know, tell everybody that which, what a surprise. Tell everybody that unit cohesion and how you feel about your mates is important. What a surprise! That kind of writing of history leads to a failure to give due weight and thought, particularly in the contextualization of an understanding of the methods of military history and the methodological problems of it, to issues of relative effectiveness. Um, and I, I'm not at all happy with the way Hastings sets about it. I mean, much he should care what I think because he's a, a well, you know, sells very well and people will read that. But I cannot actually, um, you know, sort of praise uh, his work. And what do you make of the um, uh, harping that uh, is prevalent in, by among others, uh, Churchill, Field Marshal Alexander, in uh, Lord Moran's uh, diaries um, or in the middle of the war about the fighting qualities of the British soldier. In, that's, in essence, the carping is that the um, Tommy of World War II was not of the same quality as his predecessor in the Great War. Yes, and, and as you know, we've talked in the past about Jonathan Fennell's work on morale. Morale fell after the fall of Tobruk. There's no two ways about it. It did. 
concern about it. And as you may know, there was a um, after the fall motion of no confidence in Churchill in the House of Commons, there was a feeling that things were going badly wrong. Churchill, in part, was trying to slough off the blame. Uh, there were a group uh, of political figures uh, who fancied themselves as the obvious replacement. And classic example is Stafford Cripps came from Moscow because he saw where he'd been ambassador, so he saw himself in that light. But going more specifically to the issue of uh, the Northern Desert, the Northern Desert, they found it very difficult not so much fighting quality and people in tanks uh, were charging forward and getting uh, and getting killed by german uh, anti-tank guns so it's not a matter of matter of of cowardice they found it difficult to work through the necessity for armor infantry coordination and that's a very interesting uh problem. It was a problem that persistently um, affected the, um, the British, I, I would say, until Montgomery came along. Now, Montgomery you know, was um, not the, the easiest of men, and people tend to be critical about him on that light, and he was obviously not short of confidence in himself, and that, again, earned him enemies. But he was very good at breaking the habit of armoured officers who were essentially from a cavalry background of thinking that they didn't need to charge forward and that what they that what they should wait is for the infantry and the artillery to coordinate with them now this goes on though being a problem it's a problem in the battle of normandy i i cite in one of my books um uh, documents of the period in which uh, generals are complaining again about the armour charging forward. And it's an interesting sociological pattern. Incidentally, the Germans have the same problem on the Eastern Front in 1941. Uh, the uh, armour often going forward way in advance of the infantry, which is much slower moving, which is fine if they're up against nothing in particular. It gets them into real problems once they encounter strong defences, because those strong defences need to be suppressed by artillery with infantry support, or looked at differently, infantry with artillery support. So there, it is a common problem there, and it's not one unique problem. Other factors in 1941-42, again, this is no secret, you can see it in the, in, the, in the no-confidence debate, was a feeling that the British had not always got the best tanks, um, and I think that um, and that was a matter mentioned in the Commons and discussed at some length, uh, and I think, again, it's fair to say um, that the, um, the as it were, 1930s technology that might well, and indeed fighting technology, will be fit for purpose in terms of the tasks facing them in the 1930s, were not necessarily fit for purpose in terms of 1942. And again, it's a problem that affects all sorts of armies. I mean, you would make the same point about German tanks. German tanks up against uh, the latest Soviet tanks in 1941 proved to be pretty useless, which is why they have to upgrade the Mark IVs and try and uh, run out the Tigers and the Panthers, of course. Um, so, you know, is people often look at these things in isolation. They lack, I don't know why it is, there's lots of very good scholarship out there on World War II. I mean, there are some areas where there's deficiencies. There's not really... Um, uh, accessible good material on the Japanese campaigns in China in for the offensives of 42 and 44, 45. But most of the war, there is pretty good stuff. Uh, so often just look at the very specifics that they are 
are working on. So to let me give you an example, it's farcical how much of the work on the air war of World War II and the discussion of the effectiveness of the air war doesn't include in the discussion where aircraft are often most effective, which is at sea, both and against submarines. Um, you know, if you want to make broad brush comments about the effectiveness of aircraft, you shouldn't just be thinking of one rather and ignoring the other. But people don't seem to have this capacity. I don't know whether it's because they, they essentially want to write footnotes on their own work uh, and aren't, aren't willing to read or, or, or consider. I think really it's a question of considering widely. Go for a walk and think about it is what, what a lot of people should do when they start, before they start writing a chapter. Uh, but I'm afraid they don't often seem to do that. Would it be correct to say in uh, the more recent literature, I get the impression that uh, um, on the Anglo-American or actually Anglo, I'm sorry, the Allied side, there is a reintroduction of uh, the paradigm from the Great War of the learning curve. And that helps to explain to some extent uh, why there was a positive evolution in uh, Allied performance vis-a-vis -vis the Germans and the Japanese, while at the same time, um, it's notable that, particularly in the case of Japanese, but also in the Germans, that they're very static. They don't appear to have um, have the same uh, ability as the uh, Allies to learn from prior experience. Well, I think that's very true, certainly as far as the Allies are concerned, and certainly as far as the Japanese. The Germans are a bit more complicated, as you correctly say. As far as the Allies are concerned, you're taking essentially, in the case of the British and the Americans, uh, peacetime systems of which you only have a relatively modest-sized military, and you are then expanding them massively through conscripts, and that involves the learning curve, uh, in addition to the learning curve of how you take current units, let's say the Marines who might have been in Nicaragua or Haiti or the Dominican Republic in the 1920s and 30s, and, you're, and they're having to attack Pacific Islands, or the British Indian Army, which is chasing the Fakir of Ippi in Waziristan in the late 30s, high arid uh, land, and then it's having to, they're going to have to go into jungles in Southeast Asia. So for both regulars and for volunteers, yes, there's a big learning curve. Uh, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right about the static quality of the Japanese. I think there is a lot of evidence of that. German's a bit more complicated. I mean, it's quite interesting, for example, the way in which the Luftwaffe does adapt um, to develop its techniques, tactics, um, uh, uh, and indeed technology against the combined bomber offensive, um, but on the other hand, I would say that the quality of um, of the Germans on the whole is fairly static. Uh, and in some cases, um, I think it's, you know, I think by the end of the war, you are getting a emphasis on um, uh, you know the the emphasis on willpower uh, with some of the, as a sort of substitute or something um, is becoming a substitute for any sense of strategic analysis. So, in essence, that perhaps explains, in particular, the lack of um, tactical um, improvement in the German performance in the Battle of the Bulge. Well, you're very right, German. German, I mean, the German officers, as we know, were a bit worried about their um, the, um, the the fighting ability of particularly some of the infantry in the back. 
much. Um, I mean, obviously, they were up against, they had several advantages, cloud cover reducing the Allied air superiority, the advantage of, uh, of surprise. But American resistance uh, was very uh, on the flanks of the German advance, which helps to reduce the room for manoeuvre. Um, and, I mean, I think it's the combination that the Americans did not collapse as, you know, the Germans had clearly hoped. Um, so the Germans were less successful tactically than they'd anticipated. Um, and the whole strategy was flawed as well, because the idea that they were going to, as it were, inflict such a defeat on the British and the Americans um, that they would persuade them to go for a separate peace um, with uh, with Hitler so that he could then turn against the Soviets. Um, I think that that was based on a deeply flawed understanding of the strategic parameters of the war at that time. Uh, that's being polite. In other words, it was completely ridiculous. If you wanted people to take one thing away from our discussion, what would it be? I think that World War Two is too important an, uh, an episode of military history, and it's too much an aspect of the trust between the generations to simplify it either in terms of an exchange of resources or by simply writing about the face of battle and the shock of conflict and failing actually to engage uh, seriously with the question of relative effectiveness and why one side won as opposed to the other. That observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Cheers.